You're listening to Just One of the Guys, an incredibly green podcast. Only not in a way that would make the Eden Corps happy. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 104 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi there guys, my name is Sean Engel and it's my job on this podcast to cover the Green Lantern comics starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004 and putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rainer, neither of whom are in the books today. In fact, the only Green Lantern that's in the book is Hal Jordan. If you've been following along over the past couple issues, it's not the Parallax Hal Jordan. It's the Hal Jordan from, well, not the distant past, but I guess the sort of 1960s past. And this time, he's teaming up with his good friend, Green Arrow. Unfortunately, it's not Oliver Queen Green Arrow. It's Connor Hawk Green Arrow. And they're taking on some green foes in the two-part crossover between Green Arrow number 136 and Green Lantern number 104, entitled Greener Pastures. And speaking of green enemies, we get the third part of the Heart of Darkness storyline crossed over between Green Lantern and Sentinel, where Jade has to take on a green enemy of her own. This green enemy being the Starheart, the sort of embodiment of magic from ancient times that the Guardians (sighs) imprisoned in the battery and escaped and is wrecking havoc with the universe. Sound familiar in any way? It should. Not that I'm saying that Jeff Johns ripped this all off for the uh, idea behind Parallax, uh, but there are some interesting parallels between that. No pun between Parallax and Parallels. But we've got that coming up. We've got a couple of emails to read through and a couple of promos to do. But I say all of that to say this. Stay tuned after these promos. And when we get back, emails, then Green Arrow, number 136. the battle stations engage Captain Picard is a pain isn't he interesting no redeeming qualities I think you should be destroyed the great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to earth go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. 
Protect yourself, Captain. We're going to destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at 2TrueFreaks.com. Hey everyone, welcome back. And before we get into coverage of the comics, we've got three of them, so I'm going to try and burn through this as quickly as possible so we can get to the comics coverage. I've got some wonderful email from you wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And before I get into the reading emails, I'd like to let you all know that you can email the show at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. If you've got anything to say, if you've got criticisms, if you've got uh, compliments, whatever you'd like to talk to me about. I'm always happy to get emails from people. I'm especially happy to get this email from my longtime listener and good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. And his email is entitled, oh, this is going to be hard, Mele Kalimaka. I think that's Hawaiian or something. I couldn't be sure. Maybe Google Translate could do that for me. Anyway, Scott says, hi, Sean. What did you think about the Seahawks game against San Francisco last night? We're diehide... Die-hard Seattle fans in here in Vancouver, so we're pretty excited. Here are some notes on the issues I read recently. Well, first of all, I was glad that the Seahawks beat San Francisco because Colin Kaepernick is a jerk whistle of extraordinary measure. But unfortunately, I'm not a huge football fan. But like I said, any time that someone could take down that dick whistle Kaepernick or whatever his name is, I'm happy to see it happen. 
Anyhow, getting back into the letter, uh, Scott writes, Green Lantern number 93, this was a strange issue. My first comment was that the cover sucked because it was just a close-up on Kyle's face. But then you mentioned it was face month. Yeah, that was what they were doing with all the covers. So if you weren't uh, too keen on them drawing close-ups of the uh, characters' faces on the book, then yeah, you would probably not like that month all that much. My own opinion pretty much stays the same, though. It's a terrible cover. Again, Kyle is a killjoy for not wearing a costume to a Halloween party. To be honest, I really didn't like this issue. The idea of a lesbian killer on Halloween trying to get revenge for his wife leaving him for another girl is weak. I noticed the Comics Code Authority didn't approve this issue. Uh, it makes sense because, yeah, there was a bunch of violence. In fact, the uh, dead girl in the alley was pretty horrifically graphic. You made a good point, Scott says, that as very soon after Kyle destroyed an Asian gang with his bare hands, he hurts himself by punching the lesbian killer with one punch and says, Ow, this body ain't used to throwing punches. Yeah, they can't determine whether Kyle is actually capable of fighting hand-to-hand or not. Uh, it's one of the minor nitpicks I have with the book from the time. It was pretty gross, Scott continues on, when Kyle slips on the dead girl's blood on the panel on page 20, and the girl standing with dead man inside her, inside her really creepy out. Almost read that uh, in a very awkward way. Conveniently, the killer falls on his own knife in the end, we don't have to follow this story into future issues. Well, sorry you didn't enjoy that. I, I thought it was a bit heavy-handed with the idea of the lesbian killer, but... Yeah, it's a Halloween story. I think I think Michael Bradley may have mentioned in a previous email that it felt more like a Dead Man story than a Green Lantern story. So, yeah, this probably could have easily fit into the purvey of like a Outsiders type story with Dead Man handling it. So, yeah, you take it for what it is. Green Lantern Quarterly Number 5, Scott says, Wow, the first story about the GL that got attacked by the yellow pointy things in space was brutal. It was a sad story, but I'm glad the dude was eventually able to get his dead body back to the volcano to dump it into the lava so his son would be born. If you understood that sentence, you realized how just out there that storyline was. Elliot S. Magan, you may write some good Superman tales, but man, this was one wacky Green Lantern tale. The second story about Alan Scott de-aging was weird. The new Harlequin is hot, and I can see how Alan really wants a piece of that. Well, yeah, if you're into hair metal groupies, so there you go. I guess we'll have to wait to find out if he's faithful to his old wife or if he'll run off with the young bombshell. Alan's faithful. Clue number one. I found it funny that you passed on the Itty story. I thought for sure that you would mention the crazy sex scene between Itty and his lover. Ugh. I didn't even want to think about that. That scene should have been censored a bit more than it was. Uh, should have been censored by not being in the book, in my opinion. The Nort story about the dog switching places with humans was okay. I can't help feel bad for Nort after his sidekick, Sax Girl, leaves him in the end. Poor Nort. He probably thought that he was going to hit a home run with her, especially after she Frenched him. Or she French kissed him on page 51. Uh, I don't know if Nort was into that thing, and you know if the Comics Code Authority was on there, the bestiality would probably be in the book and that'd be kind of icky continuing on and away from the uh, subject of bestiality green number green lantern number 94 this was a good issue scott says the opening page is hilarious because as you mentioned kyle and superboy were falling into lava but they both can fly 
I'll admit I'm not very familiar with the character of Superboy. I like him so far, but I'm mixed on his 90s costume. Oh, that costume was awesome. For the 90s. He's just like one of those young punk kids that tries too hard to dress cool, and you just want to punch him in the face. Uh, I think that was definitely the point. I agree that Pelletier definitely draws great women. The artwork of Pele on page 21 is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. The Menahune characters are interesting. I wouldn't mind learning more about them. Well, I would suggest that you check out those earlier Superboy issues. I guess uh, Charlie told me that he uh, dealt with those characters in uh, previous issues, so there you go. And this is the first time I've seen Silver Sword, too. I was quite surprised how weak Kyle and Superboy were against him. They were knocked out cold with one punch each. Yikes, Kyle and Superboy in the issue Drowning in Lava. The suspense of wondering if Kyle is going to get his art project done on time is killing me. thought there was a little bit more drama than just Kyle getting his art project done, but there you go. Good issue, Scott says. Superboy number 47. This was a great cover by Grummet and Hazel with Kyle and Superboy riding on the lava on a ring construct. I think you could put the words Grummet and Hazelwood do a good cover on pretty much any sentence you could probably formulate. If Scott continues, it was very nicely done. I agree that Pele is not as hot in this issue as in the previous. The splash on pages 12 to 13 was absolutely amazing with Kyle directing the lava with his ring and also collecting some of the innocent bystanders and shooting them off into a roller coaster. On page 15, you guys mitched the Mars bar on the sign of one of the buildings. Oh, yeah, I guess we did. They put a little uh, background, back matter up there, basically giving names of certain creators, and I just missed that, that the uh, Mars bar was there. And Mars as in Ron Mars, the uh, writer of Green Lantern, and Superboy at the time. Sean, your comment about the puddle underneath Civil Sword's butt was hilarious. Well, you take what you can. Superboy really looks... uh, I'm sorry, Superboy really tries to knock some sense into Pele by smashing her good-looking face into Paul. That was funny as he tries to reason with her after he kicks her ass. Well, sometimes you just have to you have to smack a girl around before you can get her to listen to you. I hope you all realize that that was a joke, and I do in no way advocate hitting a woman. Come on, people. That's friggin' ridiculous. It's it's called sarcasm and comedy. I get it. <clears throat> I really enjoyed the recap. I'm going to go to hell for that. I really enjoyed the recap of Superboy by Charlie Niemeyer, and it was interesting to learn that Superboy ends at issue 100, and he ends up going to the Teen Titans. Overall, I really enjoyed these nice wine issues, and Charlie Niemeyer was great. Yeah, I'm glad to have Charlie in the show. Uh, I particularly want to have him back again i've just got to find an issue where he might fit in and unfortunately charlie is having some things happening in his life which may kind of take him away from podcasting for a while they are uh, kind of small and living in his wife's womb right now so yes charlie is well he's not going to be having a baby his wife is but he will be taking care of the baby once once his wife has them so congratulations to charlie and his wife i hope they have a uh, I hope they eventually are getting sleep now because it's not going to happen soon. Finishing up the email, Scott writes, Overall, I really enjoyed these nice wine issues, and Charlie Niemeyer was great. I already read that. I had some trouble understanding parts of your show because you guys had some pretty primitive Oklahoma dialect. Okay. Signing off from the Great White North, Scott. Thank you, Scott. I 
hope you were able to understand me rereading your email uh, through the uh, horrible Oklahoman language barrier that comes forth through my speech patterns. I'm not channeling Shatner, I promise. After that, we've got one more email, and I'll read this from Mr. Ben Perlman. And Ben Perlman writes a happy 100, so I guess he's talking about issue 100 or episode 100. He says, hello again, Mr. Sean Eagle. Congratulations on reaching episode 100. I've enjoyed each one and look forward to many more milestones. Well, I guess 150 is the next milestone, or if you want to be sort of marginal, 125, I don't know if I'll get to 200 simply because only 181 issues of the comic. So there you go. Anyhow, he continues. I recently listened to your coverage, your coverage of issues 98, 99 and 100. And I have a few comments if you don't mind. I really like the era of Legion of superheroes covered in 98, 99 and seeing Kyle interacting with them and taking on a mentor role was very enjoyable. Two thoughts though. Throughout your coverage of 98 and 99, you kept referring to Carrie Wren as Kyle's ancestor. Don't you mean descendant? And sadly, that's because of my lack of... It's because of my Oklahoma dialect that I did that. I'll blame it on that. Yes, I did mean descendant because ancestor would have meant that she was birthed prior to Kyle being birthed. And that's, that's my bad. Also, you mentioned that you were surprised that Legion didn't recognize Cal's name, if not, the, if not through being a Green Lantern, then through his art. I'd like to point out that the statue was signed by K. Rayner. Since this is a thousand years in the future, it is possible that his first name was forgotten, and he's only known as K. Rayner. Uh, I could kind of buy that, but I think my thinking on it was that they didn't actually know his... I guess, secret identity or his actual name. I mean, the Legionnaires know each other by name, but I don't know if Kyle ever gave his name as being Kyle Rayner and whether they could equate those things. So there you go. In issue 100, you said that you were irked that Hal was able to use Kyle's ring, even though it wasn't, it isn't related. He isn't related. I do believe that it was mentioned, and it might have been in issue zero, that since Kyle's ring was originally Hal's, as shown in issue 50, the ring can be used by Hal. And that makes sense. And I agree with you, that was kind of what they did, that uh, Kyle got the ring from Hal. But since they just previously made such a big deal that the ring can only be used by a descendant of Kyle, it just felt kind of awkward that they were able to swap rings like that. But, you know, I, I agree. It was Hal, and there was time travel and time displacement in it, so it could have been that. Anyway, Ben finishes up saying, I enjoy the Emerald Knight storyline and look forward to your coverage. I especially like the ramifications of this story for John and Jade. Once again, happy 100, and here's to many more. Ben Perlman. Well, thank you again, Ben. I really appreciate you writing in. And uh, like I said, if you guys would like to write in, the email address is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to write in some emails, and I'll read them on the air and Babylon like this in my goofy Oklahoma dialect. Anyhow, we've got three comics to cover this time out, so let's go ahead and get into it with Green Arrow number 136. It was cover dated September 1998 and released on July 8, 1998. The cover price was $250 US, $350 Canada. The title was Green Pastures Part 1 in the Garden. The writer was Chuck Dixon, penciler was Dougie... Really? Dougie Braithwaite. 
Inker was Robin Riggs, colorist Lee Lowridge, letterer John Costanza, guardian Darren Vincenzo. For some reason, Al Gore has slimmed down, trading in his suit and tie for a spandex bodysuit, and has gotten marginally more emphatic about environmental causes. Wait, wait, what? That's not Al Gore? <laughs> really? Okay, whatever. The guy I mistook for Al Gore is spewing some zany rhetoric about glorifying nature and watering the earth with blood of millions to a crowd of like-minded followers. Meanwhile, at the Watchtower on the lunar surface, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, welcomes back Connor Hawk, the former JLA member and current Green Arrow. John asks about Connor's unexpected visitation, and the Emerald Archer says that he's looking for Green Lantern. John directs Connor to the Watchtower Garden, where Connor enters the Arboretum and he finds the Green Lantern. Only probably not the one he expected. Doctor Who reference. Connor is shocked to see instead of his friend Kyle Rayner, his father's friend, Hal Jordan. Hal shocked to, as well to hear that Oliver Queen not only became one of his best friends, but also is dead, much like his other best friend, Barry Allen. Confused and upset, Connor says that he never should have come back to the Watchtower, but Hal tells him to let him in on why he was looking for Green Lantern. Connor relates the story of the Eden Corps, a radical group of eco-terrorists that Ollie died trying to take down. Hal asks why he couldn't have helped his good friend out, and Connor says that he wasn't there, that he was paralyzed. Determined to try and make things right, Hal rings up Connor in a bubble construct and heads out to meet with Green Arrow's Man on the Street. Of course, that Man on the Street is the chain-smoking badass Jim Gordon wannabe Eddie Fires. The Emerald allies approach Eddie to see what kind of info he's found out about the Eden Corps, and Eddie shows them that he obtained better than info. He caught a member of the group that he's bound and gagged in the trunk of his car. Eddie tries to use a little persuasion on the eco-wacko to no avail. But Hal steps in with a greater threat, one which involves his ring pulling him apart molecule by molecule and then putting him back together. Maybe not in the right order, over and over again. Eddie approves of the tactic, but he questions Hal's mental state. But none of that matters, as the captive anarchists spilled his guts, letting Hal know the name of the leader of the group and where they're hiding out. Allowing Eddie to take the criminal back to the feds, Hal and Connor head for the airbase where the Eden Corps are supposed to be plotting their attack. A little while later, the duo touch down at the abandoned air airfield, where they both experience a little bit of deja vu. Hal's due to his time as a desk pilot, and Connor due to this being like the field where his father took off from before he died. Hearing that Connor is actually Ollie's son makes Hal have a mild freakout over all the changes that he's had to deal with over the past few weeks. But that has to take a back seat as the duo are suddenly fired upon by the members of the Eden Corps. Hal and Connor take out some of the goons, but Hal is struck by an energy weapon, then forced by Bengal, the Eden Corps' leader, and... Al Gore wannabe, to surrender his ring lest they shoot some innocent hostages. Hal complies and he and Connor give up their weapons, only to find that the hostages were bluffing. They also find that an old Air Force rival of Hal's, Hardy, is part of a terrorist plot, a plot that involves dropping a 2,000-pound nuclear warhead on Mount Rainier, activating the volcano, and wiping out a large section of Washington in the process.
this is a nice crossover that we're having between Green Arrow and Green Lantern that was kind of becoming commonplace in this time period. The only difference this time out is instead of it being uh, Kyle and Connor, this time out it's Hal and Connor. The story by Chuck Dixon, again, was impeccable, uh, as always, and it starts to show a little bit of Hal starting to go a bit beyond his normal heroic moments. He gets a bit a bit dark in this, and I don't know how this bodes well for his future in the DC Universe at the time if he's going to have these moments of darkness. We'll see how that plays out. Plus, the book also has Eddie Fires in it, and I've got to tell you, Eddie is one of my favorite characters from the Green Arrow book. He is just so, so amazing. However, it is kind of sad that this is the penultimate issue of the Green Arrow series until it got revamped when Kevin Smith came back. Well, I guess you could also consider that there was the one million issue that came out after the issue after that. But other than that, yeah, next to last issue, sadly. So it's a good run for Chuck Dixon, though, I would have to say. But moving on to notes, we'll start with the cover. It's a nice image by DiMaggio and Campanella that has the two heroes sort of in a, what I guess you could call a yin-yang image, with uh, one facing down and one facing up, both doing very heroic things, Hal firing his ring and Connor blasting off in a couple of arrows. Um, It is kind of weird with a reddish-pink background. Is Is the crisis going on behind them or something? I can't tell, and... There is a bit of a ne negative art aspect to it, and Hal's face just looks a little odd. It has that kind of look of a blow-up doll, and I'm certain there are probably people out there who would be excited to have a Hal Jordan blow-up doll. I'm not one of them, though. Now, moving on to the book on page one, I joked about this nut job being kind of like Al Gore, and really, that's a cheap shot. Al Gore, despite what you may think about his environmental issues or his uh, devotion to the environment, is nothing like this guy. This is a person who wants to destroy people's lives, literally, with a nuclear weapon in order to bring the environment back. It's such bizarre eco-terror stuff that I could never account it or never relate it to Al Gore. It was just a cheap shot on my part, and I hope you forgive me for it. But I will admit, I do love how Dixon tends to write about radical extremists in the books. In fact, last time we had him writing about a person who wanted to commit hate crimes against people, and then prior to that, we had another person who was wanting to sort of take over the media. So it's, uh, yeah, I think Dixon has a thing, if not against specifically people on one side of the aisle, specifically about people who are radical and fundamental in their beliefs of things. Page three, panel four. I do have to compliment Braithwaite on this panel, though. Martian Manhunter looks excellent. The shading on here is perfect. His face looks really good. He's got that sort of grim look that you associate with John. Really good artwork here. But however, on page four, panel one, he still looks really good, but he's got that sort of jerk move, which is his hands crossed, and 
he's not standing there, but he's doing that sort of Superman floating thing. He's just a few inches off the floor, which, yeah, it's kind of one of those things like, hey, I'm super powerful and I can fly. And it's really not an inviting pose, which would kind of make Connor, I think, feel very uncomfortable coming back to the JLI satellite or the JLA satellite. Page 7, panel 1. Again, Braithwaite is just really doing a great job with the artwork here. We get an image of Connor after seeing that it's not Kyle on the satellite or on the moon base, that it's actually Hal, that he's completely shocked. And he gets the image really well of him sitting down on this rock and just being flabbergasted by what he's seen. He wasn't expecting Hal, who he knows was a very good friend of his father's. And he knows that Hal is basically, he knows about Hal's future. So I think Braithwaite does a great job at displaying the the level of concern that Connor is feeling right at this moment. Page nine in the middle of the panels, or the middle panels here, provide a really great framing sequence for the conversation that's going on. As uh, Hal asks Connor, you know, why wasn't I there to save Ollie from this terrorist group? You get a close-up on both the characters' eyes, and Connor tells him that he wasn't there, and Hal then realizes that the reason he wasn't there was because he was Parallax. And it's a really, again, really good artwork, close-up on the eyes, great framing sequence that shows kind of the emotions behind the characters at the time. Then moving on to page 11, I'm glad to see that Eddie's in the book. I mean... I should have expected it being the Green Arrow book, but I'm glad to see him here. And then on page 12, panel 2, we get this look of Eddie, who is just awesome. In order to find out about this group, he has captured a person and has him bound and gagged in the back of his truck. And the look on Eddie's face, Braithwaite gives him sort of a look of smug. He's He's very smug, he's grinning, and he's kind of winking at the characters as well. It's just perfect but then on the same page we get that point that I was talking about in the synopsis where Hal goes a bit dark and he tells the guy that he captured that he could use his ring to dissolve him take his molecules apart and then put them back together now I don't know whether he could actually do this maybe he could but yeah it kind of hints at some of the darkness that might be inside Hal that might actually be leading up to the fact that he may eventually become Parallax. It's a nice little seed that they're planting here in the book. Moving on to past uh, them getting the airbase, on page 15 we get Hal getting his kind of stun moment and uh, sitting down just trying to take everything in after Connor tells him that he's actually the son of Green Arrow, that he's Ollie's son. So realize he's come from the past, he's learned that he's been parallaxed, that Coast City was destroyed, Barry Allen is dead, Ollie is dead, and now he's working with Oliver's son. And it just sort of hits him, and he has this quick little moment of freaking out, breaking down. And Braithwaite and Dixon, the dialogue and artwork, really sell that sort of feeling of not knowing what to do with your life, that what's gone on. And they, like I said, they sell it really well on this page. Then we move on to pages 16 through 18, which is what Chuck Dixon does best, 
action, and there's a lot of it going on here. Uh, really good, really good poses from the characters with them running into fight, how ringing up a bowling ball construct to knock some of the people down. But how getting blasted by an energy beam and then giving up his ring, that's kind of weird, but yeah. And that leads us to one of the uh, one-off characters that these Green Arrow, Green Lantern crossovers just seem to keep popping up. And the character of MacGuffin, I, I'm sorry, the character of Hardy, who seems to be a one-off person who was Hal's friend, well, not really friend in the Air Force. Essentially, he's the John Travolta character in this storyline. John for Travolta from Broken Arrow. You get the reference. But then the last page, 21, we get the idea that they're going to bomb Mount Rainier, which is an active volcano. And I did a little research online, and I don't know if bombing an active volcano with a nuclear warhead would actually accomplish what they want it to do, but... Let's just take our mind off of it and say it's all for science. Comic book science. Anyhow, that does it for this issue. I, it's a really good setup. A nice cliffhanger ending, of course, with the obvious MacGuffin character who has ties to Hal Jordan. But we'll see how this finishes up in the next issue, Green Lantern number 104, which we'll be covering right after this. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries, turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes and one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, 
as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, we'll also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back, and if you are ready to get into it, so am I. And by get into it, I mean cover Green Lantern number 104. It was cover dated, again, September 1998, and released the week after the previous issue, Green Arrow 136, on July 15, 1998. The cover price was $1.99 US and $2.85 Canada, and the title was Emerald Knights Part 4, Greener Pastures, Conclusion lot of wordage there. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Paul Pelletier, inker Terry Austin, colors and separations Rob Schwager, letterer Chrissy Leopolis, co-pilot Dana Curtin, and pilot Kevin Dooley. See what they did there? Our story opens on Air Force pilots Hal Jordan and Vince Hardy reenacting a scene from John Woo's Broken Arrow, specifically the one where John Travolta attempts to hijack the stealth bomber that they're flying in order to steal the nuclear warhead that they're carrying. Hardy offers to cut Hal in on the scheme, but Hal responds by grabbing Hardy's gun and trying to wrest the controls from him. This puts the plane into a nosedive, and with cowardice being the better part of discretion, Hardy decides to jump from the plane, irked that he didn't make it off with his nuclear cargo. Hal desperately tries to level the plane off, unfortunately to no avail, leading him to bail out and be forced to wander the Alaskan wilderness for two days before he was rescued. This leads us into a tied-up Hal Jordan, a.k.a. Green Lantern, relating the aftermath to his captive partner Connor Hawk, a.k.a. Green Arrow. Hal mentions he was dismissed from the Air Force after the incident, and he never had seen Hardy since. Of course, he's seeing a lot of him now, but that won't matter much, as soon both he and Green Arrow will be seeing the interior of Mount Rainier close up from the perspective of a falling nuclear bomb. Eco-whackjob Bengal arrives to spew his nutty dribble about how the bomb will reclaim Seattle for nature, and Hardy panderingly agrees with the Earth Forest Freakazoid. Hal mocks Hardy's commitment to the cause, which gets a reply of a big old who gives a <laughs> so long as I'm getting paid from Hardy. Hardy makes a quick comment on how Hal has kept himself young over the past years, and preps the heroes for a major Kong level of final send-off. Cut to the plane in flight over Washington. Connor is imagined to loosen the ropes that bind him and Hal to the bomb and grabbed a sharpened arrowhead from his utility belt. Connor whispers for Hal to keep the hoods preoccupied while he cuts through the ropes, which Hal does by thanking Hardy for getting him released from the Air Force, as it inadvertently led to him becoming Green Lantern. Hardy scoffs at Hal, saying that it doesn't matter now and he's now in possession, as he is now in possession of the ring. As Bengal and his men manually crank open the bomb bay doors, Connor free- breaks free of his bonds long enough to punch a couple of Eden Corps members. However, he didn't completely break free, which causes Bengal to topple the bomb onto the partially open bo- bomb bay doors. Bengal attempts to stop the hordes by putting a bullet in their heads, but a reluctant cult member doesn't feel like becoming a mushroom-clouded martyr. Bengal scoffs at his lack of commitment and turns the gun on him 
giving Green Arrow and Green Lantern just enough time to free themselves. Connor tackles Bangle while Hal heads to the cockpit to stop Hardy. McFight and Stein ensues, with Connor securing the bomb with a chain while Hal takes a fingernail rake to the face. With the plane in a dive similar to the one years ago, Hardy decides to make a leap for it again, but Connor manages to get a shot off, relieving Hardy of the lantern ring he wore in a chain around his neck. Hardy curses the loss of the ring, but is satisfied enough that Jordan will make a crispy critter in a matter of seconds. But this time, Hal's able to level the plane out, and with the nuke secured and Connor autopiloting the plane, Hal flies out his Green Lantern to get a little bit of payback. Floating through the ground, Hardy wonders why there was no earth-shattering kaboom, and his question is answered as he sees a pair of giant ring-construct scissors cut the ropes of his parachute. However, Hal catches and jails him before he can become a Jackson Pollock print on the forest floor. Sometime later, Hal and Connor commiserate over the grave of Oliver Queen. Connor mentions that he's not really buried here, which will eventually allow Kevin Smith to bring him back in a couple of years. And Hal says that with time displacement, he feels like he's lost him twice. But as the two walk away from the silent memorial, Hal tells Connor that he did well in following in Ollie's footsteps. And if he could see them right now, he knows that Ollie would be smiling. Surprisingly, for the Green Lantern Green Arrow crossovers, this time out it's Ron Mars who gets to do the more action-heavy issue. It was nice to see in this issue that Hal and Connor got to work together, mixing up the hard-traveling heroes theme by swapping the generation of the heroes. Austin's aiming this time over Pelletier was a lot better. Um, the line work was a lot less thick, and I don't have as much to complain about with Austin's inking in this issue as I have in previous, so maybe Austin and Pelletier are just getting better at working together. Otherwise, yeah, much better artwork this time out. And speaking of artwork, we can go, uh, go ahead and go to the cover, which is a similar cover to the Green Arrow one with the two characters in that sort of yin-yang pose with both of them doing various things, shooting off arrows and, you know, firing a ring blast. But uh, at least this time, it doesn't look like they're doing it at, with the background of uh, the crisis going on. In fact, I think it is kind of, well, the poses aren't the same, but it could be from a different perspective. Um, here on the cover, I guess Pelletier, and again, this is, much before Darwin Cook would ever do him. But Hal has that sort of very classic, very Darwin Cook, Final Frontier look to him. So if you enjoy that kind of thing, I think you would enjoy this cover. Getting into the book, pages one one through five, yeah, it's essentially that scene from Broken Era with Christian Slater and John Travolta arguing over a nuclear missile that John Travolta is trying to steal. The movie came out, I think, maybe about a year before this book came out, so I might see where Dixon and Mars might have taken the concept from, and it is pretty heavily playing on that, but it doesn't detract from the story at all. Then on page six, we get the trope of how you can tell that the guy is obviously a bad guy, it's the 90s, and he's smoking a cigarette. And whenever you're smoking a cigarette in the 90s in a comic book, you're either the bad guy or maybe you're Eddie Fires. Never can tell. 
page eight, I just wanted to comment again about the character of Bengal, who's the leader of the Eden Corps or Eden Corps, and he's just such a loser villain. I really can't stand eco-idiots who think destroying human life is the best way to benefit the planet. Whether or not you're in the mindset that humans are the cause of all the problems on the planet or not, destroying human life is not going to make the planet better. It's it's just short-minded goofiness. There are better ways to get across the idea of keeping the planet clean than blowing up a volcano with a nuclear warhead. Ridiculousness. And then on the same page, panel five, how do you know that Hardy is truly evil? Why he doesn't even finish smoking his cigarette before he tosses it away, not even putting it out, and lights up another one. Man, this guy's evil. Page 9, panel 6, Hardy mentions to Hal if he's ever seen Dr. Strangelove, and I had to go check to see if Dr. Strangelove was actually out by the time Hal was being published, and yes, of course it was, so Hal probably would at least be knowledgeable to the references that would be made because of Dr. Strangelove if he hadn't actually seen it himself, so. And there's a, obviously Dr. Strangelove reference in here with the two being strapped to the bomb. I mean, Major Kong wasn't strapped to the bomb, but it's the same same scenario in theory. Page 10, again, the Eden Corps. They're perhaps the lamest, stupidest villains I've seen because they only take off Hal's ring, and even they didn't take off Hal's ring. That was Hardy. The Eden Corps left Connor with his utility belt on, which obviously has a bunch of pouches on it, which allows him to get to one of his little arrows or arrowheads, which he can cut through the rope with. Stupid, stupid eco-terrorists. But then moving on to the book, it's just sort of a big claustrophobic fight scene, which I think Pelletier really sells. The artwork looks really good. Um, There's a lot of action in it. Uh, Page 15, we get a nice face scratch from uh, Hardy to Hal, which is pretty brutal. Uh, also shows that Hardy's not willing to uh, fight clean. He'll he'll scratch a guy across the face if he thinks it'll get him the upper hand, so to speak. But then on page 18, panel 1, another example of Connor being one of the most awesome characters out there. Connor shoots an arrow while jumping in a moving plane and manages to hit the ring that was off that was hanging off Hardy's necklace through the ring itself and snap it off his necklace. How awesome is that? The answer is ultimately. Page 20 is Hal's going down to take out Hardy and he's got some nice classic constructs here and it's nice to see the simple ones in the book every once in a while with the the giant scissors and the catcher's mitt well the baseball mitt where he catches hardy so i like that it's kyle's elaborate constructs are really cool to see but when Hal's doing it it's nice to see the simple things come back pelletier again does a great job of does a great job at drawing them and then finally on page 22 the final splash page we get the sort of cliched image of the ghostly figure of the dead hero overlooking you in the sky but it works here, and I think 
Pelletier also, again, does a really nice drawing of Oliver Queen. I will admit, you know, his left arm is a bit bit bulgy, a bit too muscled, but otherwise it's a really good image and a really great ending to the issue. Uh, this was a nice little short one-off story that, of course, really didn't do with any characters that I could have cared about. The Eden Core, lamest bunch of villains out there, and the introduction of this character, Hardy, which is supposed to have connections to Hal. Who cares as well? But with Ron Mars and Chuck Dixon writing and Doug Braithwaite and Paul Pelletier on the artwork, it all comes together and makes a good little fun two-part story. And sometimes these two-part stories, these crossovers between Green Arrow and Green Lantern, are what you're looking for in fun comics of the time. But that does it for the issues. Since they both came out in the same month, I'm going to take a look at the ads in Green Lantern and see if there's anything interesting in there. The front inside cover is an ad for Coca-Cola, and this time the blurb on the big red background is the word grab, which I guess could be misconstrued for something else. But yeah, you can grab a Coca-Cola, amongst other things. We then get the uh, one free ticket to Six Flags Parks, which you can find if you uh, buy two adult tickets and you have, uh, I guess, backs of Cheerios or Golden Grams or Cinnamon Toast Crunch or anything like that. So I think we covered that last time. Then there's an ad for Tangent Comets, which is... Uh, I don't know how to explain this. I guess it was a sort of weird offshoot of Green Lantern Comics to... Or not to Green Lantern Comics, to DC Comics, which viewed the characters in a vastly different way. Uh, it's a way to sort of showcase new talent. Uh, we've got Tales of the Green Lantern, Nightwing, The Joker's Wild, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and JLA, and they're all very trippy anime-style influence. Yeah, I don't think this would have been for me, but it's there, so there you go. We've got that horrible Fruitopia fold-in ad. Don't fold your pages in your comics, kids. You know the you know the drill. We get an ad for uh, Jack Kirby's New Gods, Secret Files and Origin, which I guess gives you maps of uh, New Genesis and Apocalypse. So if you ever wanted to know where Darkseid lived on Apocalypse, you could probably find it there. Uh, art by Magnolia, Steve Rude, John Byrne, Keith Giffen... I don't know who DeBurke is, J.H. Williams III, and others. So, eh, Jack Kirby's legacy lives on. You get the uh, weird sort of CGI, almost looking ad for the Dome Ground Zero with creepy arms outstretched, bald space Jesus, and mech warrior robots with giant claws, and then uh, Dante and some girl running in front of them. So, yeah. There you go. Then after that, the next ad is for Deadly Ninjas, He-Man Heroes, Astounding Dinosaurs. It all adds up to High Adventure in Guns of the Dragon, a four-issue miniseries by Tim Truman coming out in August from DC Comics. And I have no idea what this is about. It looks kind of cool. It looks very pulpy. But, yeah, again, I have no idea what this one is about. Like I said, looks good, though. We've got the same subscription ad with the uh, members of the JLA, including uh, Electric Blue Superman flying at you. And in fact, I don't, don't think Superman was really in his Electric Blue costume anymore. The Watch the Space ad, uh, 
touts the new Young Justice series uh, starring Superboy, Tim Drake Robin, and Impulse, which I think was Peter David writing that. And if Peter David's writing it, it's bound to be fun. And it's got to be better than the Teen Titans that we were dealing back dealing with back in issue 101. Uh, not fun, Titans. Then the last half of the letters page has an ad for the new Martian Manhunter ongoing series, which... I don't think went very far, unfortunately. Sadly, John Jones has not really had the uh, best of luck in carrying an ongoing series. The back inside cover is a another ad for the JNCO sneakers, which they just look like crappy shoes. I, I don't know. I've never had a pair, but the fact that I don't remember seeing them when going out to buy shoes at all makes me feel that these are either just goofy specialty shoes or they just never, never lasted. Probably put money on the latter. And then finally, the back outside cover is the advertisement once again for Shara Michelle Geller as Buffy the Vampire Slayer in her trench coat and bustier with uh, a milk mustache. Again, at least I'm hoping it's a milk mustache. Be creepy otherwise. But that does it for this issue. Like I said, good story. Nice little short two-parter. Kind of derivative of the movie Broken Arrow, but if you're going to steal from something, steal from something fun. One of John Woo's better movies. But that does it for this issue. I'm going to take another quick break, play a couple of promos, and when we get done with this, we'll get to the final part a Heart of Darkness featuring Sentinel, Green Lantern, and Jade in a ridiculous, ridiculous outfit. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen Podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. 
different as Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. And once again, we are back. So let's go ahead and dive right into our last book we're covering this episode, Green Lantern and Sentinel, Heart of Darkness, number three. It was cover dated May 1998 and released on March 25th, 1998. Cover price was $1.985 US and $2.75 Canada, and the title was Father's Day. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Dan Davis, colorist Jason Wright, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. Alan Scott is dying. Worse than that, he's dying in a nightmarish landscape where he, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner, and his children Jenny and Todd, and the magical menace the Starheart are currently trapped in. Kyle rings up a hospital bed and medic to try and keep Alan stable, but as his knowledge of treating sickness is based on viewing ER, the best he can do is to keep the former Lantern stable. In order to truly save him, they need to get him out of here, and the only way they can do that is through the Starheart. The verdict villain scoffs at the noble yet futile gesture, saying that Jenny, like Todd, will eventually realize that he is her father, tempting her with unlimited power. The Starheart tells her to join Todd and him, and they can rule the galaxy as father and daughter. Okay, it didn't work. But Jenny isn't swayed, instead trying to appeal to her brother to forsake his dark side. But Todd is undeterred and wraps Jenny up in his ebon energy. Kyle has a little something to say about that as he bashes Obsidian with a ring construct robot, then flies toward the Starheart to try and put a stop to all of this. The Starheart counters with engulfing Kyle in the surrounding landscape. Holding him captive, the Starheart shouts that he is pure chaos, and what the Guardians tried to contain billions of years ago will now spread across the entire universe, after he destroys the last symbol of their failed order. But before the Starheart can literally crush Kyle in his bare hands, Jade screams for him to let Kyle go. The Jolly Green Giant concedes, provided Jenny joins him, something that Kyle begs her not to do. Jenny tells him that it's her choice to save both him and her father, and with a parting kiss, Jenny flies up to the Starheart to accept her destiny. The Starheart awakens the latent energy inside her, transforming her into a being of unlimited power! Oh, wait, I already did that. As well as giving her a near Aresia level of goofy costume. Giant Jenny uses her unlimited power. Okay, I'll quit. Jenny uses her newfound power to attack the Starheart in hopes of destroying him once and for all. Back beside the hospital bed, Alan and Kyle look on, hoping that Jenny manages to not only save them, but herself as well. High above, the two teal titans tussle, taking turns at tossing taunts at the other. The Starheart seems to be winning, but in a last-ditch effort, Jenny gives into the chaos and begins to use the power to rip the Starheart and herself apart. Kyle looks on in disbelief when Alan approaches and says that he has to try and keep Jenny from falling headlong into the unlimited... Oh, God. Did it again, sorry. Kyle flies into the maelstrom, reaching a desperate hand out 
and calling for Jenny. Cut, surprisingly, to a peaceful wheat field where a dazed Kyle meets up with a powerless Jenny, a back-to-his-youthful self, Alan, and a not-quite-so-much-of-a-dickweed, Todd. Crisis averted, Jenny takes Kyle's hand and walks off into the sunset, saddened by the loss of her powers, but happy that when she had them, she followed in her father's footsteps as a hero. As in most storylines, which cover three books and cover three different characters, this story is primarily told uh, by the character of Jenny, or Jade. Uh, Alan and Todd are pretty much relegated to being background characters, but Kyle actually this time out has a little bit more to do with the story. Plus, we get to see the lead-up to the big Jenny and Kyle kiss in Green Lantern number 103. Of course, again, Pelletier's art is awesome as always, with some really great and kind of surreal imagery that doesn't feel like it's trying to ape Ditko. It's got that mystical kind of Doctor Strange feel, but it doesn't feel like it's obviously referencing something that Steve Ditko did. On its own, it's really bizarre and out there, but not reminiscent of other creators. So good work on Pelletier for coming up with creepy, weird stuff on his own. Going into the book, uh, taking a look at the cover, first of all, I'm going to say that out of the three covers here, the one with Alan, the one with uh, Kyle, and the one with Jenny on it, the one with Jenny on it, this one is my favorite cover. And not particularly because Jenny is on there. Although, yes, she is very, very attractive. However, the one thing that kind of diminishes the cover is the fact that she's wearing perhaps a, like I said in the synopsis, a near Aresia level of ridiculous outfit. Thankfully, the anatomy here by Pelletier isn't goofy wonky. It's not Catwoman cover strange. Her pose is very cheesecake. The uh, outfit is far more revealing than it should be, but it doesn't look out of proportion. Pelletier, again, is a great artist when it comes to drawing women, drawing them sexy, drawing them in proportion, and not making them look, you know, ridiculous. So that's probably why this cover is my favorite. We'll get to the costume later. Moving into the book, on page three, panel one, Cal rings up a hospital bed and a doctor or an intern or nurse to take care of Alan as he's kind of fallen on hard times. Some of the things that kind of concern me about this construct, first of all, Kyle says that he's not really that knowledgeable about medical operations. So why in the world would this construct have IV bags? And where would they be sticking in Allen? If you've got an IV, you've got to put it into a vein, and you've also got to have some sort of fluid, usually a normal saline solution to help replace the uh, fluid that you're losing. So it just seemed kind of out of place. Plus, you can't really tell from this image because it's kind of from a distant uh, vantage point. But I'm wondering if the surgeon or intern who's looking over Alan Scott is supposed to be George Clooney. Uh, you can't really tell from his facial features. So I'm wondering if they tried to slip that in without 
photo referencing the character of George Clooney for BR. Page six, panel one. I think it's kind of neat that uh, Cal rings up a sort of iron giant sort of construct here. It looks really cool. And first of all, I'm just a fan of the movie, the iron giant. So anytime Kyle can reference that or the writers or artists can reference that in the book, always a good thing for me. Moving on in the book. I really don't have all that many notes specifically. Um, the next one I really have is on page 11, panel two, we get the first kiss between Kyle and Jenny. And it initially starts out kind of innocent, there's really nothing romantic or torrid or sexual about it. It's just one of those moments where Jenny's essentially saying her farewells to Kyle. And in this panel, Kyle's kind of taken aback from it. And Pelletier really does a good job of selling it with you know his body positioning and the kind of look on his face as well. It's a nice, again, it's a nice beginning to their relationship forming organically and that seems to be as i've commented quite often on the show the way ron mars is able to progress his relationships between kyle and other women in the book so i'm really enjoying where things are going with jenny and kyle but then we get to page 13 and here's where it gets just kind of wonky Jenny's outfit is essentially a bikini top, a very high-waisted bikini briefs, thigh-high silver boots, silver gauntlets, and silver shoulder pads that don't really go to anything. For a moment, I thought, even though she's wearing a very skimpy top, that it might also have a circular window or a boob window, but thankfully, no, that's just a symbol on her chest. So they didn't go completely ridiculous and give her an almost nothing there top as well as a boob window. So that's good. But another one of the sort of wacky things about her uniform is it's got that sort of Donna Troy, the sort of starry Wonder Girl type outfit. Uh, if you know, in the later runs of Wonder Woman, Donna Troy had that black outfit that had the sort of starfield effect in it. That's kind of what Jenny has here in her very minimal bikini. Page 14, panel 2. I know there was a lot of creepy eye imagery around in this weird realm that the Starheart is present in. But why did Kyle have to take it one further and make his ring construct shield that he's defending himself and Alan from, or he's defending himself and Alan with from falling rocks. Why did he have to make that a giant eyeball as well? Just more things falling into an eyeball. Ugh. Not liking it. Pages 17 and 19. Here's the part of the book where it could have gone into, like I said, that sort of, Steve Ditko-esque kind of trippy Doctor Strange type effect, but it manages to get across the really weird, surreal vibe that they're trying to get of magic and emerald energy floating together out in space without aping the sort of Ditko feel. So I like that they have a different sort of aesthetic for the weird magical essence that's being tried to portrayed in this book rather than having to go 
and dig up stuff from Steve Ditko's Doctor Strange run, which would have been easy to ape and easy to do. They went their own route, and I think it works here really well. And then, page 20, they're all in the middle of a wheat field in wherever. That was a really kind of weird ending. I never would have expected it to end like that. You know, I thought they might end up back in New York City or something, but I guess this gives it a sort of idyllic feeling where the sun is setting over a nice, serene, normal-type place rather than the very surreal, uh, mystical-type place that they were in. So maybe they're trying to compare and contrast that way. I do like also on this page in the fourth panel here where it's Kyle's turn to sort of catch Jenny by surprise by grabbing her and giving her a great big hug. And again, it's their relationship growing stronger because of these things that have happened in their lives. And again, it's not feeling forced. It's feeling very organic. And again, (laughs) I'm saying again, again, Ron Mars is doing a great job at portraying it. Which, of course, leads us to page 22, panel 5, the final panel in the book, where you just see Kyle and Jenny holding hands. And it's it's beautiful. It's a relationship that develops from a friendship. It doesn't feel like it came out of the blue. It came organically into the story. And even though in the story Jenny lost her powers, she went out as a hero. She was doing what she wanted to do. She was following in her father's footsteps. She was the hero of the story. So really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed these these three books, these three issues of Heart of Darkness. I'm glad I went back and covered them as well. So far, all of the ancillary stuff that I've been covering, aside from a few issues of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, have been really, really good stuff. So I've got to say... This era of Green Lantern still is holding up to be one of my favorite eras of comic books. So I'm looking forward to what we have next. And what we will have next is going to be some some really fun stuff. I can tell you this. Next week, we're going to be dealing with Green Lantern and Parallax. And not Kyle Rayner and Parallax, but Hal Jordan and Parallax. Something's up. Parallax is back, and he's gunning for Hal Jordan. We're going to find out in the penultimate issue of the Emerald Knight Saga what's going to happen between these two Emerald Titans. Plus, we've got a book that was recommended to me by a fellow podcaster that deals with the Amalgam Universe. It's Iron Lantern number one, the Amalgam mashup of Iron Man and Green Lantern. And we're going to have a special guest on to help cover this book that is just a barrel of fun. So, I can't wait to get to talk about that, and hopefully you can't wait to listen to it. But, sadly, you'll have to, as seven days will have to pass before I put out another episode. But it's seven short days, so look forward to that. And we'll see you next time, next Friday, here on Just One of the Guys a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. Have a good weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. 
All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Imagine Dragons and their song, Radioactive, off the album Night Visions. You can pick up the album, you can pick up the MP3, or you can pick up the single from a myriad number of places. Of course, the best place to go would be to twotruefreaks.com. Twotruefreaks.com, however, does not sell that, but twotruefreaks.com does have a link to Amazon.com. Go to the website, twotruefreaks, and you can click the Amazon.com banner up in the upper left-hand corner. From there, you'll be transported to Amazon, where you can buy the Imagine Dragon CD, you can download the MP3, or you could buy various other products that would interest you from Amazon. There's tons of things to buy, the prices are great, and anytime you use the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop at Amazon, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra when you purchase things from Amazon.com through the link at twotruefreaks.com, but it does help in giving a little bit of money back to us. So, whenever you think about buying something from Amazon, make sure you go through the link at twotruefreaks.com.